The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Wednesday nighters. How are we doing? There's two people that are doing good over here. How's everybody else doing? Everybody's okay? Everybody's good? Hey, there's coffee in the back. Everybody go get a cup of coffee. Uh, meet me in five minutes. Um, no, if you do want coffee, there is coffee in the back, and um, you are more than welcome. Yeah, go ahead. Yep, enjoy it. It's cream, too, and sugar. Um, hey, did everybody get one of these things? No? Does anyone have extras? Did there end up being extras anywhere? I think Mary's got some back there. Raise your hand if you didn't get one of those. Okay, did anyone have extras? I printed 70 of them, so I know there's extras. Maybe, maybe not. Okay, we'll do our best. Um, There's pens up here. If anybody needs a pen, that is my gift to you tonight. Don't say I never gave you anything. Guys, Bibles, book of Leviticus, if you want to crack them open, that's the third book in the Old Testament. Are you guys excited about Leviticus? Oh, man. So I got to tell you, this is funny. Um, uh, Leviticus is literally kind of the book where everybody quits reading the Bible. Uh, Everyone's like, I'm going to read the Bible in a year, and it's going to be so great, and Genesis is fun, and Abraham, and creation, and Adam and Eve are naked, and that's cool, and whatever, and then Exodus, and like, oh man, God parts the sea, this is fun, this is cool, and then Leviticus, everyone's like, forget it. I'm reading the Gospels. Okay, give me, give me the book of John. Uh, Leviticus is like, it's littered with, with the bodies of those who have quit uh, reading the Bible, and so um, I'm actually uh, really excited to teach you guys um, through the book of Leviticus tonight. For those of you that are just joining us for the first time, we're doing, as you can see up on the screen, uh, an overview of the Old Testament. Um, if you guys look at your Bibles, you'll notice that probably three-fourths of your Bible is actually Old Testament. Um, and even though the majority of the teaching that comes out of the church um, as, as a whole, Christianity as a whole, is, is New Testament, the majority of the Bible is actually found in the Old Testament. And so there's two real reasons why we're doing this series. Number one is we believe the Old Testament is foundational, fundamental to the understanding of New Testament truths and principles, okay? Uh, if you don't get the Old Testament, the New Testament doesn't quite have the same power and impacts. Um, the second reason we're doing this series, and this is more kind of the reason why we're doing it the way we are, um, is, is we're trying to stay out of the weeds a little bit here. Now, we're, if you haven't noticed, we're doing an entire book a night, which is crazy. Uh, it stresses me out all week. <laughs> like, how am I going to teach an entire book of the Bible in, in 40, 50 minutes? Um, so that is kind of what we're doing. The reason that we're doing that is because we want to really get a flyover perspective of the scriptures. Sometimes uh, we get caught in the weeds. We, we pull out a verse uh, and we try to figure out what it means and, and, and how it can mean to us. And we look up the Greek words and we look up the Hebrew words and that's all great and fine. But from time to time, we need to get up above God's word and really get the flyover perspective so that we can see God's full redemptive story and God's full redemptive cord that weaves its way all throughout the scriptures. Does that make sense? Everybody got that? So flying over the top of the scriptures. Old Testament is important. So let's pray and we'll, we'll get to work. Father, I'm, I'm just really thankful tonight, God, for the privilege of getting to teach this beautiful and amazing and powerful book. Uh, God, I, I by no means feel qualified. Um, and there is so much here that we don't understand. 
But Holy Spirit, I just pray that you would come upon us tonight. God, that you would prophesy truth into our hearts and into our minds. Oh, Holy Spirit, that you would make much of Christ tonight in this room. That you would glorify the eternal purpose and plan of Christ in our lives through the scriptures. God, help this book to make sense to us. Help us to see Jesus in it, we pray in your son's name. Amen. Hey, a couple things too. You, if you guys did get one of these, um, there's a few things that I'll get to later. But um, the first thing is sort of uh, a way for you guys to follow along and take some notes. Um, the questions on that paper I'll be asking throughout this teaching, so you can fill them in as you go. Um, you can use that if you like. If you don't, don't worry about it. It's, it's helpful for some people to be able to answer these fill-in-the-blank questions. So, um, yeah, feel free to use that if you'd like. So, Leviticus... The, the book of Leviticus, uh, let me start here. About a thousand years ago in church history, um, say uh, 11th century um, AD, about a thousand years ago, there was a theologian by the name of Saint Anselm of Canterbury, okay? Um, considering that for a name for my child. Come here, Anselm, and especially the Canterbury part, you know, I just like that. Never heard of that name before, but uh, this guy... Anselm of Canterbury, he, he was famous for a few different things. He was one of really the, the only theologians of his era that really had work that stood the test of time. And he wrote a few different books, a few different things, all of which were pretty short. Um, but one of them in specific he wrote really stood the test of time. And it was about this, what was called the satisfaction view of God and the atonement. And we'll get into that in a minute. Um, the, the, the thing that I want to talk to you about is the name of this book that this man, St. Anselm of Canterbury, wrote. Um, it was in Latin, and the name of this book was posed as a question. And it was this. I'll, I'll teach you a little bit of Latin, not because I know Latin, but because it's here. Um, the Latin went like this, the name of his book. Uh, it's Cur Deus Homo. Okay? And what that means in Latin is, why the God-man? Okay? Uh, why the God-man. This was the question that he posed in this book. And really what uh, uh, St. Anselm of Canterbury was asking was this question, why did God need to become a man? Uh, there's a word in theology that we used to describe God becoming man. It's called the incarnation, okay? We read about it and hear about it a lot at Christmas, the fact that God became man in the person of Jesus. And, and he's posing this question, why was it necessary for God to become Man, this is the question that I believe the book of Leviticus answers. I believe that this New Testament theological truth and question of why did God need to become man is answered in the book of Leviticus. And the way that he, in his book, why, uh, in his book, Why the God-Man, the way that he approaches it is, is he first says, you have to understand the nature of God to answer this question. And, and if you were to ask someone, what is it about God that made it necessary to become a man? Like, what is it about God's nature that made him think, I need to become a man and put on flesh and go down um, into the world and walk among people? Most people would probably say, well, it was God's love, which is true, right? John three sixteen, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, Okay? Um, so yes, God's love was part of the reason he had to become a man. Some people would say, well, it was God's mercy. That's true as well. Ephesians says, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love wherewith 
He loved us. But Sir Anselm of Canterbury says, but that's not the primary reason that God became a man. It wasn't just his love. It wasn't just his mercy. And you might be surprised by this, but actually it was God's holiness that mandated, that made it necessary for God himself to become a man. And that's a perfect setup for our book because the theme of Leviticus, and this is on your sheet if you want to fill in the blank, the theme of Leviticus is holiness. It's a book of holiness. A book specifically about God's holiness. Not just holiness in general, but specifically about God's holiness. So I want to kind of try to unpack what I just said, because I know it was real confusing and theological, but, but Leviticus, I believe, allows us to understand and answer this question, why did God have to become man? Why, why did God's holiness prompt himself to become a man? So what, let's start here. If you guys have your Bibles, Leviticus chapter 20. Let's get into the book really quick. This is dead center in the middle of the book, chapter 20. A little more towards the end, actually, but... Um, and really in chapter 20, verse 26, we find sort of the, the, the big key that unlocks the rest of the book, okay? And this is what God says to Moses in the book of Leviticus. He says, you shall be holy to me. Okay, there's that word, right? Holy. You shall be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy. And I have separated you from the people's that you should be mine, okay? If you have a pen, underline that, because this verse, like I said, this is key to understanding what the book of Leviticus is all about. Now, God says two basic things in this verse. First of all, he identifies that he is holy, okay? He identifies that he is holy, and second of all, he identifies his intention for mankind, for his people. He says, my intention is to make you holy like I am holy. You know, if, if you're not familiar with that word, I want to spend just a little bit of time talking about the word holiness. Because if we don't understand holiness, you're not going to understand Leviticus. Because Leviticus is the book of holiness, okay? It is the book of holiness. So what is holiness? Holiness, first of all, is it is perfection. Holiness is being set apart, as God would define it. Set apart from the world. Set apart from sin. It is righteousness, it's being pure and without blemish. Okay, now that's all a little confusing. Let's, let's put a little bit more meat on it. What is holiness? Let's use this definition. Holiness can be thought of this way. Take the word whole out of holiness, and you have wholeness. Okay? To be holy is to be whole. W-H-O-L-E. Are you following that? To be holy is to be whole. It's to be not lacking in any way. You're not missing anything. There's no pieces taken out of you. You are whole. You are complete. You are perfect. You are um, set apart without blemish. That is holiness, to be made whole. Now, God is the definition of holiness. Okay? God is the definition. Holiness is not for me to define. It's not for any other man to define. It is God that is literally the definition of holiness himself because God is whole and not lacking in any way. God is completely self-sufficient. He is not needing from anything or anyone. Okay? God is the definition of holiness. He sets the standard for what holiness is. 
is. Now, another question on your sheet you can answer. Why does God care about his holiness? Why does God care about his holiness? As we saw right there in in the key that unlocks Leviticus, right? God says, I want you to be holy for I am holy. So God is concerned about his holiness. He says, my focus is on my holiness. And the question is, why does God care about his holiness? And the answer, and some of you may not like this, God is for God. Okay? God is not ultimately just for your joy, for your pleasure, for your comfort. God is not ultimately for the human race. God is ultimately for God. God's ultimate purpose is for God, for his own glory. So why does God care about his holiness? Because God cares about himself. You say, well, that's conceited. Aren't we supposed to be not about ourselves? Yeah, because you are not God. If you were God, trust me, you would be about yourself as well. God is not only the definition of holiness, but he is the measure according to his own nature. God is concerned about his holiness because he is the definition of holiness. He cannot change who he is. God is holy. He cannot change the fact that he's holy. Okay, So he's concerned about his holiness and his own nature. God cannot and will not be defiled by the sin of man his own holiness will not allow it, okay? So it's not as though God's saying, yeah, you know, I just, I just don't like mankind. God is bound by his own perfection and wholeness and can have no part with the unholiness of man because God is perfe- perfect and in perfection. There's a disconnect there. Now, another question, why does God care about our holiness, Why does God care about the holiness of his people? Well, because God's, yes, for himself, but God's heart is also for his church. His heart is also for his people, in this specific case, Israel. God's heart is still that his people would be restored into his presence, into relationship, that the relationship between God and man would be restored and repaired. Now, If man is to approach God, it will be in God's way, according to God's own standard, measured by God's own nature. Does that make sense? So let me try to unpack this a little bit more clearly. I brought this. We're going to play Pictionary tonight. Are you guys excited? I'm I'm joking. Um, We're not going to play Pictionary. Uh, I'm just hoping because Leviticus is sort of complex that this will help a little bit. So up here, we have God. Okay? God is holy. We define that a little bit. He's perfect. He's lacking nothing. He's whole. I know you can't see it, but if you look on your little handout, you guys, I, I made a copy of my terrible handwriting. Are you excited about that? It looks like a four-year-old wrote it. But that's okay. You get the point. I knew you guys weren't going to be able to see it, so I did that. So up here we have God. Down here we have man. And man is sinful. Okay, following me here? God is holy, man is sinful. What is this? This is a big giant gap. And that gap is the result of the fall. So here's man, here's God. 
The fall has come between God and man. We saw that in Genesis chapter 3. You remember that? Now, it's important that we understand that. When you look at Exodus, what we just finished, uh, let, me, let me say this really quickly. Uh, the books of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy are actually one story. Did you know that? It's called the Pentateuch, which simply means the book of five. Okay? So you can't really just pull one book from the rest. So it's important that we really understand that this is a narrative and these books all belong together. So really to understand this big gap here between God and man, um, you have to look at what happened at the end of Exodus. You see, the tabernacle was built. You guys remember if you were here last week, the tabernacle was built, this place to house the presence of God and God's holiness where the, the Ark of the Covenant sat in the Holy of Holies. And God's presence comes, and at the end of Exodus, God's presence comes and fills the tabernacle. But there's this interesting thing that happens. Moses is unable to enter in to the tabernacle. Why? Because Moses is unholy. (laughs) Because just weeks prior, Moses and all of his people were worshiping a calf made out of gold. Well, Moses wasn't worshiping it, but still. Guilt by association. They're worshiping a calf, and God is upset about it. So even though God's presence is in the tabernacle, man is unable to go into the presence of God into the tabernacle because there's this disconnect. That's where the book of Exodus leaves off. Now what's interesting is when you go to the next book, which will be in next week in the book of Numbers, all of a sudden Moses is in the tabernacle. What happened? How is it that now he's able to go into the tabernacle? Well, I'll tell you what happened. Okay? Leviticus happened, (laughs) okay? God said, I know that I'm holy, and I know that you're not, and so therefore you can't be in my presence. And so I'm going to create a way for you to be able to be in my presence through the tabernacle. And he did that through the Levitical system. This is what the book of Leviticus is for. And it's important before we dive into it that we understand, okay? This is huge. God is holy. Man is not There's a disconnect, and Leviticus is the way that man. Now, I'm going to draw some arrows here because it's important to understand that man is seeking to reunite with God, and he's going to do so through the Levitical system. So on your handout, I asked the question, what is the purpose of Leviticus? Ready? The purpose of Leviticus is God's standard for man's holiness. Okay? God's standard for man's holiness. God says, if you want to get to me, this is my standard. This is what you must do to get back to me in my my presence. Now we're going to skip all the historical content because like I just said, this is all one book. Same person that wrote Exodus, wrote Leviticus. The same time frame, the same everything. So we're going to skip that for tonight. And we're going to stick with this flow of this story. So now let's look at the narrative content. Let's look at what's actually in the book of Leviticus. And this is kind of where people get lost. This is where you start reading and by chapter four, you're pulling your hair out. What in the world is all this stuff? Why does it matter? Um, why, why are you talking about all of these random things like not touching dead bodies or eating certain birds or all of these things that just seem completely random and out of place? And so what I want to hopefully do for you guys on this thing that you can't see is try to, to, to bring some, some rebar into the concrete of all of this uh, and bring some structure into this. So the flow of the book goes like this. God gives three avenues, because remember, man is trying to get back to God into God's presence. 
Leviticus is that avenue, and God gives three primary avenues in the book of Leviticus for man to get back into the presence of God. Everybody tracking with me? Okay. The first one is rituals. Okay, you can write that on your paper if you'd like. The first thing that, and this is what makes up the content of this book, okay? The first thing is rituals. The second thing is priests. And the third thing are purity laws. So, in this system that God created for man to be back in the presence of God, it consists primarily of these three categories. And he will talk about, God will talk about these three categories all throughout the book. Now, let's start with the first one, rituals. Dun, dun, dun. Rituals, okay? You guys have probably heard about a lot of these rituals before. Um, If you guys got your little handout, pull it out. I gave you guys a nice little uh, chart that you can take home and study more on your own. I'm not gonna go into the rituals too much because if I did, you guys would all be sleeping um, and I'd be up here by myself and someone else would be preaching next week. So, uh, but I am gonna just quickly point out that the rituals that God gave man are in two categories. First is the seven, uh, let me make sure I get this right. First is the seven feasts or holy days, whatever you want to call them. And the second is five different offerings. And I have both of those things on each on a different piece of paper for you guys to take home and and study more on. But God in great detail and in great length in the book of Leviticus describes the pattern for them to do each of these things, these rituals. The seven feasts uh, are, are basically these. He says, I want you throughout the calendar year, the 12-month calendar year, I want you at, periodically at different times to do specific feasts and celebrations. And I want you to do that because I want you to remember a different aspect of my faithfulness to you in the Exodus. So for instance, uh, in the first month, uh, they would do uh, Passover, okay? You guys are familiar with Passover uh, from the New Testament. That was to remember the Passover lamb. And then they would have another feast called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And that was to remember that they left Exodus in a hurry, in a rush, and they didn't leaven their bread, okay? Then there's this other feast called the first Feast of First Fruits. And you can see how they all work in the calendar there. This is, this is Judaism 101, okay? Uh, and the First Fruits is to remember God's gift and the promised land of food and, and provision. There's the Feast of Pentecost. There's the Feast of Trumpets. There's the Day of Atonement. And there's the Feast of Tabernacles or Booths. Okay? And it's actually really important to study this. If you guys have time, learn them. Because when you're in the Gospels, a lot of those feasts are still taking place in Jewish culture while Jesus is on the scene. Okay? It's important to know those. So that's the first half of the rituals. Then Leviticus goes into these other rituals called offerings. Okay? Offerings. I gave you guys a little sheet that has uh, these five offerings laid out here and some clarity that you can take home and look at. The five offerings are this, burnt offering, sin offering, meal offering, peace offering, and trespass offering. And the purpose of this offering is that God wanted man to continually be reminded of his sin, the fact that God is holy and man is not. And so he gave all of these different ways that man could ask for forgiveness and also worship God. Okay, three, or I'm I'm sorry, two, no, Yeah, three of these feasts were to say, God, I'm sorry. 
forgive me, I repent. Two of the feasts were just to simply say, God, thank you, I worship you. And there's all kinds of pictures and symbolism and all kinds of things we could get into, but I just simply don't have time. So that's the first pillar of what God gives man in Leviticus to get back into his presence. And then we get into the second one, and that is the priests, okay? The priests, and this is huge. This is really important that you understand. A lot of the narrative, a lot of the text in the book of Leviticus is directed towards priests, okay? The priesthood is huge. Now, in order to get the priesthood, you have to backtrack a little bit. If you guys remember in the book of Genesis, we were just there two weeks ago, um, Joseph, who was the son of uh, Jacob, traveled into the south and when he traveled into the south, his brothers joined him and that's where they began to flourish in Egypt as a people and became a people group. And as such, those 12 brothers formed what was called the 12 tribes of Israel. It's really important to understand that. 12 tribes of Israel, okay? Now, one of those tribes specifically was selected by God to be the tribe that would lead the others into worshiping God into this system of Leviticus, into this Levitical system that we see. And that was the Levites. That was the tribe that God chose. Why did he choose them? Well, there's actually a story in Exodus that we didn't look at, look at last week because we didn't have time. And this story is after the Israelites disobey God and they worship this calf, uh, Moses comes down the hill and God is furious and all of this crazy scene goes on. God basically draws a line and he says, hey, who is ever with me, come over here. Whoever is on my side, whoever says uh, that, that they're truly going to follow God, come on this side of the line. And do you know what tribe it was that chose to go and side with the Lord? What tribe was it? It was the tribe of Levi. And God says, okay, because you've chosen to be my tribe, because of that, I'm going to bless you with what? My presence. You get to camp closest to the tabernacle. And you get to be the one that goes into the tabernacle and offers sacrifices and you actually will be the closest to me. That was the benefit for their obedience to God. Now here's a little, a little quiz for you guys. Uh, you get points if, if you win it. What two primary characters in Exodus were Levites? Can anybody tell me? Moses? What was the other one? Aaron. Good job. Cool. Good job. I didn't, I didn't know if anyone was going to get that or not. Um, Moses and Aaron were both, and a lot of people don't know that Moses actually came from the tribe of Levi too. They were, they were brothers, Moses and Aaron. They both were, came from this tribe. And so therefore it was Aaron's sons that were going to take on the responsibility of being the priest, the priesthood. Now the priest's function was this, okay? The priest's function was two things, okay? One was to minister to man and the other was to minister to God. That was the two jobs of the priests, first and foremost, always to minister to God. So if you had a sacrifice that needed to be offered, you would go through the Levites. They would do the sacrifice. They were in charge of keeping up the maintenance on the tabernacle. They were um, in charge of all of the things that had to do with this system that Leviticus, literally Levi, Leviticus, is all centered around. That was the job of the priests. Um, just real quick. There's two primary sections that talk about the priests in Leviticus. It's chapters 8 through 10 and chapters 21 through 22. And 8 through 10, uh, you see Aaron literally just um, ordaining his sons to become priests. And guess what? Right out of the bat, man screws it up. 
okay? Right out of the bat, God says, okay, Levi, your tribe, Levites, you are the people that are going to be my priesthood. And literally within days, Aaron's two sons, uh, Nadab and Abihu, okay? Great names, Nadab and Abihu. You can't name your kid that now, I guess, but they blew it. So they go to offer a sacrifice of burnt offering on the altar and they do exactly what God said not to. They bring strange fire, to the altar, and as a result, God consumes them with fire. So right away, you see that this system that God gave, and there's nothing wrong with this system, it already has a flaw. But the flaw isn't the system, the flaw is the people trying to make the system work. The priesthood immediately has problems. Systemically, it's got issues. And then in chapters 21 and 22, we hear more about what it really takes to be a priesthood. Uh, all the moral sort of code and, and, and moral law and, and, and ceremonial qualifications, which is the perfect segue into our third pillar, okay? The third category of what God gives in the book of Leviticus, and that is purity laws, okay? So if you're taking notes, we've got rituals, like feasts and offerings. We have priests, and then we also have purity laws, now, this is where we really begin to see this theme of holiness in the book of Leviticus. Because remember, the theme of the book of Leviticus is holiness, right? God says, you shall be holy. God is trying to illustrate to Israel his mandate of holiness for them. And he does it largely through these purity laws. The purity laws are split into two categories, into ritual purity laws and into moral purity laws. Now, here's what the ritual purity laws are. And it's important to delineate these because you'll get real confused real fast. Ritual purity laws were symbolic practices that just simply reminded Israel that every part of their life was lived in God's holy presence. So this is things like don't eat these certain birds. Don't eat these certain animals. Don't touch a dead body. Uh, don't, if you touch blood or touch something else, you're unclean and you gotta go be ceremonially, ceremonially cleansed. And we, we read some of those things now and even a lot of non-Christians read those things and they go, this is just bizarre. Why would that be not okay? There's a delineation you have to make here. God wasn't saying that it's sinful to do those things. God was saying is that symbolically you are making yourself ceremonially unclean. God was trying to show Israel that you are to be set apart from all other nations. So like, for instance, when you look at the animals that they weren't supposed to eat, it seems kind of random. Why these animals and not these animals? But historically, when you look at it, first of all, many of those animals carry diseases. And second of all, many of those animals were animals that were worshipped by pagan gods and pagan cultures. So God says, guess what, Israel? You are set apart. You are holy. So you're not allowed to eat the same animals as everybody else. Even though it seems random and in 2016 people might read that and think that's funky, God says it doesn't matter. You are to be set apart. Now, you're not sinning necessarily against God if you, you know, accidentally eat this animal, but you are ceremonially unclean. You go get ceremonially clean, and then you're good. What was a sin, however, was going into the presence of God after you did something ceremonially unclean. Does that make sense? That was not overwhelmingly confident. Um, the, second, the second types of, of purity laws are moral purity. And these are the ones that literally are offensive to God's very nature. God says, if you break these laws, you are literally offending the very being of who I am. 
These are sexual integrity laws, social justice laws, teaching us how to have right relationships. Don't murder your brother. Don't covet your neighbor's wife. Things like that, okay? Moral purity laws. I don't need to explain that too much. Now, that's kind of uh, the quicksand that a lot of people get stuck in in this book is a lot of that stuff. And when you read through the book, you're going to find a ton of that stuff. Um, and it's important to know how to categorize those things and, and really see what all of that is. And that's kind of what we just did. Now, there's this theme Besides just holiness, uh, there's this theme that kind of runs throughout all of this different stuff that we read in Leviticus, and that is this idea of blood, okay, blood. And this idea of blood is intricately woven into every single aspect and part of the Levitical system. You notice that? Every ritual, every feast, every law, it seems like almost everything comes back to this symbol, this picture of blood. Now, what's up with that? That's kind of the hang-up for a lot of people, is why is blood such a big deal in Leviticus? And why is it such a, what's with all the sacrifices and all of these kinds of things? And most people today, they have a hard time understanding that. What What is God's obsession with blood? Why is, why is God asking this Levite priest to go in and, 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 and slit the throat of a goat and take the, the blood and sprinkle it over people? I mean, can you imagine that? It's intense. It's uncomfortable. If, you, if I put that on a screen right now, what, what the Levitical priesthood did to, to animals and goats, and I mean, literally, there's the historical accounts in Israel during Passover when Jesus is... Jesus came in, there's historical accounts that the, 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 the water source that Israel drank from literally turned red from all of the blood. There's accounts from Josephus that upwards of a million lambs would have been slayed in the time of Jesus during the, the feast of Passover. It's bloody. The book of Leviticus is bloody. Now, if you don't like that, if that's offensive, it's normal. God says, I know it's offensive. I made it that way. I made it that way because blood is one of the most powerful symbols that God could possibly pick to illustrate and to image what he wants his people to understand. Okay, so if you're taking notes, write this down. Blood illustrates two things. Blood illustrates two things. Number one, blood illustrates life. Blood illustrates life. You see, God wants man to see and to understand and to swallow the severity of his sinfulness up against the backdrop of God's perfect holiness. And nothing could picture that better than blood because blood represents the most valuable thing that we have, our life. You could take my car and my house and my family and everything that I hold dear, but the most, the last thing that you can possibly take from me is my very life itself, right? Your life represents all value that you have. If you don't have your life, you don't really have anything, okay? Your life is the most important thing. And so God says this blood is a picture of the most important thing that you have, and that is your life. And that was very, very intentional. God did that with great intentionality. Listen to what Hebrews says in the New Testament. Uh, the writer of Hebrews says, indeed, under the law, in chapter nine, verse 22, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So God says, look, there's one picture, there's one thing that's necessary for you to be forgiven, and that is blood. As weird as it is, as hardcore as it seems, I know. Because we don't even understand how hardcore our sin is in the sight of God. 
And God says, in order for you to understand how severe your sin is to my holiness, I need you to literally watch as another animal dies in the place of you for the sin that you committed, that you chose. He says, Israel, you need to sit here and watch with your eyes that that animal's life is being taken and yours is not. So that you understand the severity of the sin that you choose over and over and over again. Sam, that's dark. So is the sinfulness of man. If you don't believe me, you have not lived very long. Turn on the news. Look at the world that we live in. We live in a dark and a broken and a sinful world full of broken people that are not made whole. And God sits in heaven in perfect righteousness, completely holy, and he cannot stand sin. And he needs man to understand the severity of what we do when we sin. And blood represents that. The second thing that blood represents, not only life, but it represents death. Two weeks ago, we talked about in the book of Genesis, we talked about how in the Bible, we see really a story of two families, a family of Adam and a family of Jesus. That you literally have Adam's blood running through your veins or you have Christ's blood running through your veins. And you will become your father, right? We all become our fathers. what we talked about in Genesis. And this is the idea of blood. God says, I need you to not only see that your blood is, uh, that, that your sin is severe through the blood, I also need you to see that the only way that you can ever stop sinning is to have a blood transfusion. And not physically, I'm talking spiritually. It is at the very root of your DNA to sin, to hurt people, to be selfish, to be greedy. It is born into you from our father, Adam, at a blood DNA level. And God says, when you watch that lamb die, I want you to remember not only the severity of your sin, but I also want you to remember that God has to deal with literally what makes you who you are, the depths of your soul, your blood. Does that make sense? So, <laughs> the best illustration for this, this concept of blood in Leviticus is the Day of Atonement. Once a year, God says, here's what you're going to do. You are going to take two goats, and you're going to go under, uh, under the tabernacle, and, and one of the goats, you're going to slit its throat. I know it's brutal. You're going to slit its throat, take its blood, and you're going to sprinkle it onto the mercy seat of God in the ark of the tabernacle. And that is going to remind you and, and that, that, that your sin is now cleansed as a whole, as a nation. And then the second goat, you might have heard this phrase before, is the scapegoat. Where did the scapegoat The scapegoat has a better day than the other goat. The scapegoat gets to go free, gets to run wild into the wilderness. And God says, this is a picture. It's a picture that I'm now not only paying for your sin, but your sin is removed from you. Okay, it's removed from you. That was the day of atonement. God did it specifically to remind us of the severity of our sin, the contrast to his holiness, to remind us that someone Something had to suffer for what we deserved if we were to be forgiven. And that sinfulness needed to be removed from our nature. So that's kind of the book of Leviticus in a nutshell. Okay. Um, it's a hardcore book. It's a hardcore book, but it's all for a purpose. Now I want to ask the question, where is Jesus in all of this? 
okay, where's Jesus in all this? Because uh, to most people in, in Western um, postmodern civilization, Leviticus sounds brutal and tribal and just honestly kind of weird. And we like the idea of Jesus and we like the idea of, you know, a friendly looking guy with long hair picking up kids and petting lambs and, 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 and we'd almost just rather kind of leave this stuff out of the Bible. I don't want to hear about blood. I want to hear about God's wrath coming down and striking people dead and fire consuming Aaron's sons. I want to hear about that. Where is Jesus? Give me Jesus. Well, can I just tell you that there is no book, in my opinion, that more clearly depicts Christ than this book. Where is Jesus in the book of Leviticus? Well, first of all, where isn't Jesus in the book of Leviticus? Where isn't he? If any of you have studied this book at any length, you know that every one of these things is a symbol of Jesus. Everything, every ritual, every feast, every offering, every, the priesthood itself is a symbol, is a picture of Jesus. The purity laws, Jesus, 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 all of them are pictures and symbols, and that's great. That's cool, and we could get into that. But I don't think that's the primary point for us tonight. It's not just that Jesus is symbolized by these things, but what I think we need to understand is that Jesus actually fulfilled these things, okay? Jesus actually fulfilled these things. Let me, let me explain it like this. Let me tell you what God wasn't doing with all of this in Leviticus. What was God not doing with this intricate system of laws, this path to get back to him? What was God not doing? Uh, Leviticus was not God's plan B. Okay, it wasn't like this, and a lot of people, they they wouldn't say it out loud, but they think this subconsciously. Oh yeah, Leviticus was God's mess up, and Jesus was when he got it right, right? Yeah, we don't do that stuff anymore, that's, that was a mistake, that was God's, you know, that was God's mess up, and now Jesus is the replacement of this system, that's wrong, it's not true. Uh, God was not doing through Leviticus, he was not just messing with Israel, (laughs) I mean, you read this and you almost think, man, Lord, were you just like messing with them? Like, hey, don't touch shellfish. You know, like, uh, don't, when your wife's on her cycle, don't get around her. If you do, you're unclean. I mean, that's random stuff, right? Totally random stuff. God, were you just messing with it? No, God wasn't messing with Israel. Every single one of those laws was very, very, very crucial and very, very necessary and important. God wasn't just making up random rules to live by, you know? I mean, hey, guys, go get circumcised. It's just a random idea, you know. God wasn't doing any of that. Everything in here was intentional with great intentionality for a reason. So why did God give Israel this system of intricate, intricate and difficult, uh, you know, processes by which to get to them? Jesus did it, or I'm sorry, God did it so that we could see as the New Testament Christians what, just, just how hard it is for man to get back to God and see all that Jesus had to fulfill perfectly. Okay, Jesus wasn't the replacement of this system. It's not like God says, okay, forget that. It's just Jesus. God says, no, this is all true. Jesus fulfills this. He lives it perfectly for you and I. What, what does that look like? Um, it means this. It means that God does not... Uh, doesn't, Wow, that was, that was an interesting noise. Um, it does not mean that, that man does not need atonement, okay? It's not that we don't need atonement. We do need atonement. But Jesus became our atonement. 
He fulfilled that atonement perfectly. It doesn't mean that man does not need advocacy of the priest. It doesn't mean, oh, we don't need priests. We have Jesus. No, Jesus is your priest. He stepped into that role. He fulfilled that law perfectly. It doesn't mean that all of those rules that God said were just for nothing or were forgotten. It means, no, Jesus lived those rules perfectly for you and I. It doesn't mean that the temple doesn't exist anymore. It means that Jesus gave us a new temple, that through him, you and I, as Ephesians says, are living stones fitly joined together to house the glory and the presence of God. So Jesus didn't abolish this, he fulfilled it. God says, look, this is the way to get back to me. If you want to get back in my presence, this is how you do it. And Jesus says, okay. I will do it for you, and I will live out these things systematically for you. N.T. Wright, in his book, Surprised by Hope, he, he talks about this, and he says that the big issue, largely in Christianity, is we talk so much about the death of Christ, which is crucial, right? We talk so much about the death of Christ that we forget that Christ's death was three days. His life was 33 years. Jesus didn't just die for us. Yes, he did. But he lived for us. You understand that? Do you think Jesus was just kicking rocks and wasting time for 33 years? Do you think that everything he did was just random, just kind of waiting around? Okay, God, are you going to smite me now or what? No. It was all for a reason. It was fulfilling this. Because God said, this is the way back to me. And, and you cannot do it. <laughs> so my son will come and he will do it for you. Jesus didn't just die for us, church. He lived for us. Through imputation, he gives us his perfect life. He says, I will take your crud, I will take your sin, I will take your horrible thoughts and your horrible actions, and I will take God's wrath for them, and I will give you my perfect life freely. It's good news. He lived the law perfectly. That's good news. He lived for us. Hebrews 9, 12 says this. He, Jesus, entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with ashes of heifer, those are all pictures out of Leviticus, sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God to purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Reading that through the lens of Leviticus has power, doesn't it? Man. If this system could get Moses from not being able to go into the tabernacle, and then in numbers, all of a sudden he can, how much more the perfect, spotless lamb, the eternal working atonement of Christ, can get us back to God the Father? How much more, Hebrews says. How much more? Jesus fulfilled this law perfectly and gave us his perfect life. That is good news. Listen. Jesus is not just simply another system for man to get to God. Jesus is God coming to man. Can I say that again? Okay. Jesus isn't like, okay, you're trying to get to me. Here's another way over here. No. He says, no, I am the way. Okay. 
And, and not only am I the way, through Christ and the incarnation, God comes to man. It's no longer man striving to get to God through this system. It's God says, I will come to you because you can't make it to me. Why the God-man was the question we opened with, right? Why did God have to become a man? Because man could not make it back to God on his own. God had to become man. Listen to this. This is so good. C.S. Lewis, the son of God became man to enable men to become the sons of God. Man, I gotta say that again. The son of God became man to enable men to become the sons of God. Well, what about his holiness? What's all this business about God's holiness? I asked the question earlier, why did God have to become man? God's holiness demanded it. God's holiness demanded perfection. And Christ was the only way, the only way that God's holiness could stay intact and you and I could be grafted in to the kingdom of God forever. Why did God become man? God's holiness demanded it. Demanded it. As I'm preparing this sermon, I'm sitting in my office and I'm thinking, okay, turn the corner, Sam. There's the theology. Uh, let's get to the application, okay? Because I always like to bring some application. What do I do with this, okay? Is it theological truth? Jesus has fulfilled the system. And okay, great. What do I do with that? So I'm, just, I'm sitting there and I'm, I'm taking notes and I'm thinking, what, what does this mean to my life? And I'm thinking, I got it. Here's the application. If God, through painstaking, clear, or painstaking complexity, spent all of these chapters telling us this system about how to get back to him, and Jesus fulfilled that system, then we should take painstaking complexity to, to focus on Jesus, right? I mean, if God's saying, it's, it's this hard to get to me, and Jesus did it for you, now give all that attention to him. Now, is that true? Yes. But what did I just do? I just missed the point. And God's like literally tapping on my shoulder like, Sam, that's not the point. The point is not, okay, Jesus is another way. Now let's do what we did in Leviticus, but just with Jesus. So come to church four days a week and make sure that you know all the Christian songs and make sure that your Bible looks worn and torn and make sure that you have a Christian shirt and that you memorize. That's Leviticus, man. The point is not, okay, let's make a new version of the Levitical system and call it Jesus. The point is Jesus did all of that for you. The point isn't, okay, God, I want to be complex for you. No, Jesus went through the complex system for you. And now it's all about him, not reinventing another version of Leviticus. The point of the incarnation was that God stepped into human flesh to fulfill everything. I want to read you guys something really quick about the incarnation. I found this 10 minutes before I came down here, and it just, I almost was in tears. John Piper wrote this in regards to this idea of God becoming man. And this is what he said. He said, in order for Jesus to suffer and die, he had to plan way ahead of time because he couldn't die. He's immortal. He didn't have a body. And yet he wanted to die for you. So he planned the whole thing by clothing himself with a body so that he could get hungry and get weary and have sore feet. The incarnation of Jesus is the preparation of nerve endings for the nails, the preparation of a brow 
for thorns pressed through. He needed to have a broad back so that there was a place for the whips. He needed to have feet so that there was a place for spikes. He needed to have a side so that there was a place for the sword to go in. He needed to have fleshy cheeks so that Judas would have a place to kiss and there would be a place for the spit to run down as the soldiers spat on him. He needed a brain and a spinal column with no vinegar and no gall so that the, the, ex, the exquisiteness of the pain could be fully felt. He says, so I plead with you when you're reading the Bible and you read texts like he loved you and gave himself for you, you wouldn't go too fast over it. He says, linger, linger, linger and plead with Jesus that your eyes would be opened. Do you understand the magnitude of why the God man came? He chose to put on flesh so he could be beaten. He chose to have cheeks so that he could be betrayed by his friend. You understand what he's saying? The incarnation is the holiness and the love of God all in one. It's a beautiful picture. So what does that mean? What do we do with that, right? What does that mean for us today? Two things. Number one, Leviticus reminds us that we are only made whole through Christ, okay? We are only made whole. Now remember our definition of holiness? It's wholeness. God wants us to be made whole. There is no wholeness apart from Christ. There is none. There just isn't. No wholeness. And Leviticus was not designed. This was not designed to create wholeness in you the system. And frankly, neither is the invention of Christianity that we've turned the gospel into. Burying yourself with Christian activities, Christian this and Christian that. If they make much of Christ in your life, then they'll make you whole. But those things in and of themselves cannot make you whole. They cannot make you whole any more than Leviticus could. Jesus is the only way to wholeness. And Leviticus should remind us constantly of the futility of trying to approach God through religion. When you read Leviticus and you read over and over and over again, law after law and ceremonial cleanse after ceremonial cleanse and don't eat this after don't eat this, be reminded of the tediousness of trying to get to God apart from Christ. It's exhausting. Are you tired right now? It might might be because you're living in this. Oh, maybe you're not slitting a goat's throat and maybe you're not making sure not to touch dead bodies, but, uh, but you're living in a religious system that is invented by man and you cannot be made whole by that system. Only Christ can be that wholeness that you are looking for. First Timothy 2.5, there is one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ, Jesus, the God-man. And what that looks like tangibly, maybe it's just some, some meters that you could put up throughout the week. Do you pray more when you feel like you're doing well with God? Like when you didn't blow it as much the last few days, do you find yourself feeling like it's easier to pray? You're living in Leviticus. Approach God. Approach your high priest. He can relate with you. Do you feel more peace with God when you're doing more Christian things? 
when you have K-Dove playing in your car, do you feel like you're a better person? Nothing wrong with that station. But do you feel like you're closer to God when you listen to those things? You're living in Leviticus. You've not fully embraced the new covenant. Do you look to church and Christian things to feel like a Christian rather than a true in relationship with God? I've asked this question to you guys a million times, but it never, I can never get over it. Imagine a life in which every Christian thing in your life was taken away. No Bible, no friends, no community, no church, no serving at church, no podcasts, no Christian music, nothing. Not, not even your Bible. Let me ask you this. What would you have left? What would you have left? I mean, Christ. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> That's it. That's all we have, truly. Anything else can be helpful, but can easily just become Leviticus all over again. It has to be about Jesus. It has to be about him. It has to be about the God-man. It has to be about him. He's the only one that can make us whole. One thing that I thought was so cool as I was looking through Leviticus and I'm studying each of these offerings, you know, these five different offerings, if you guys, you know, you got that. And, and, I, and, I'm, and I'm looking at this, this table that's telling me about what you can do in each of these offerings. There's a lot of complexity to it. But one thing I noticed is that in every offering, God either says, hey, you can have a portion of your offering or hey, you can't have a portion of your offering. So some of them, you know, you bring your lamb or your whatever, your goat and, 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 and sacrifices it. And, oh, you get to keep the fat or, oh, you get to keep the meat or you get to keep a little bit of this or a little bit of that. Never the whole thing. Some of it goes to the priest, some of it goes to be burned, and, and, and that's the way it goes. So you get a portion of your sacrifice. And it, and it just occurred to me, man, Christ gave us all of himself. Like, we get the full portion of Christ. He's not like, oh, you get a small portion of the sacrifice, of my sacrifice on the cross. He says, no, I poured out every drop of my blood, and I gave you all all of myself as your portion, which means that we are never, ever hungry in Christ. He is the eternal satisfaction. He is our portion, and he gives all of who he is as our sacrifice. He's the perfect sacrifice, and he is the only means by which we can truly be made whole. And number two, what does the book of Leviticus mean for us today? Number two, Leviticus reminds us of the importance of holiness. And it's really easy to simply brush holiness aside and say, well, forget that. I mean, we're forgiven. But don't forget, God said in the middle of Leviticus, my goal for you is to make you holy. That has been his plan from the beginning. Do you think that that changed? Now, Christ is our holiness. But do you think that God doesn't care now whether we live holy or not? When we choose sinfulness, we choose to literally slap the character of God in the face and say, God, I choose this over the very character of who you are, the very nature of who you are. God still cares about holiness. Listen to what Paul says in Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 7.1. He says, since we have these promises, since we have Christ, since he is our portion, Beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Man, Jesus, the gospel should stoke our fire for holiness. Not pharisaical, dead, dry bones, religious, uh, fake 
holiness, but true, authentic, broken and humble, repentant and contrite holiness. The gospel should produce that. As we see Jesus, the God-man, pour out every drop of his blood in place of you and I. It should stoke the flames of holiness. His intention always has been for our holiness and his intention always will be for our holiness because holiness is God himself. And there is no greater gift that he can give us than himself. God says, the best thing I can give you is me. Doesn't get any better than that. (laughs) I'm cool with that. There's nothing more eternal. There's nothing more sufficient. There's nothing more satisfactory than God himself. And he doesn't hold back the portion of himself at all. He gives it all, every bit to us, freely through the cross. Amen? Book of Leviticus, the book of holiness. It's rad. Tonight, we're gonna end with worship. You still have 20 minutes before your kids are out, so please stick around if you can. Communion table is gonna be open. Come and drink this symbol, this picture that Jesus taught us to be reminded of the blood that Jesus poured out. Come and eat the bread that reminds us of the body of Christ and what he did and how he was broken on the cross for for us. So we're gonna bring the lights down and I'm gonna pray and then we're gonna worship Jesus for another 15 or so minutes. God, I thank you so much. I thank you that you became man, that you became the language of God for us that Lord, we strive and try to climb up the hill to get back to you, but God, through Jesus, you came down and carried us up. Lord, we just wanna be overcome tonight by the remembrance of the gospel. We want it to affect and change the depths of our hearts. God, we can't conjure change. We can't make ourselves holy. We can't make ourselves want holiness. Only being reborn, God, can we change. So Lord, we thank you for your spirit that lives within us, that calls us up to you, that that, uh, draws us up to you. And we just invite you even now, Holy Spirit, to be in this place, God. As we worship you, as we lift hands, as we take communion, God, Holy Spirit, draw us to Christ. Draw us to these truths. May they bring forth praise and fruit in this room, God, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen.